So this is the week when we do the Psalms. Let's start off by using one. So if everybody would please stand to pray. Next slide. So let's pray this together. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down that I will go again, the Lord has led me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth wicked. Salvation belongs to you, the blessing beyond our people. Amen. Please be seated. Psalms is different from the previous books that we've been looking at in this series. In fact, it's, it's kind of different from pretty much any other book in the Bible. Among other things, it doesn't have one of these story threads that runs through it in the same way as most of the other books we've looked at. There's been something that we've heard about, at least in the introduction part. It's got 150, give or take, um, individual pieces in it. The reason I say give or take is because there's a couple of acrostic psalms, which is really, it's like a mini psalm for every letter of the alphabet. So there's 22 of them in the Hebrew alphabet. So we could have gone through one verse, picked the key verse in every psalm, and read that, and then talked about it briefly, and we'd be here for about a couple of hours. It's, it's 150 of those, so if we do one a minute, yeah, didn't do that. Something that's quite interesting is, um, Psalms is divided into five books. Now, it, it's really five sections, because books hadn't been invented until long after. So when we think of a book and we think of five volumes on the shelf, that's not really what's going on here. Um, but the five books, does that ring a bell? Have we come across that five books somewhere else? Anybody, any ideas? I, I, it's vaguely familiar. There was five, uh, who was it? Oh, it was that Moses guy. He had five books, right? So that might be a bit of a hint about what's going on here. And in fact, the Psalms begin, in the, in, in the first Psalm, it begins with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, or the Torah of the Lord. And on this Torah, he meditates day and night. So there is a connection. The fact that there's five books of Moses, and that is the Torah, and that there's five collections of Psalms, there, there's something going on there. But also to be fair, um, if you do a quick Google on Psalms, you will find 
an amazing number of ideas about how to break it down. We, we know there's different kinds of psalms. There are praise psalms. There are um, messianic psalms. There's all kinds of psalms. We, we get that. But how you actually find structure through the book of Psalms is not anywhere near as easy. And I, I enjoyed uh, Ian Proven making a comment one time about over-interpreting structure into scripture was that if I want to, I can find a chiasmus in my shopping list, which is, you remember those? I mean, uh, Addison's brought up a number of those in uh, Genesis and various other places, but as Ian points out, uh, if, if you get too hung up on structure, you can find it anywhere. And if you go on to Google, you will find so many structures for what Psalms is about. Interesting point. Although there's always 150 Psalms in our Bibles, the numbering isn't always quite the same. If you compare a Protestant Bible with a Catholic Bible or an Orthodox Bible, the Psalms are numbered a little bit differently. And if you look through the Psalms, you'll find quite a few where as you're reading and you go on to the next one, you go, oh, this is the same thing carried on. So it's not completely obvious where you start each Psalm. And in some, in the Greek versions versus the Latin versions, there was a little bit different choice. We always end up at 150, but sometimes two are put together and sometimes two are split apart. So if you're reading something from say a Catholic author sometime on a Psalm, and they're talking about Psalm 21, and you could have sworn that was Psalm 22, you could both be right. Um, Previously, we read about David. We heard David's story. We heard that in several different places. But in Psalms, we hear from David. That's an important difference. This is the difference between um, an autobiography and somebody writing an essay about somebody. So these Psalms, we've, we've already learned interesting things about David. David is recognized as being the part of the story of the Bible where repentance is introduced. Before David, repentance was not understood as clearly as David puts it and, and exhibits it in his life. The, um, the Psalms which are of David are also a little bit more complicated. There's definitely ones, I'm pretty convinced there are Psalms by David in there. We know Clearly, David was well-known as a musician and a worship leader. Um, but the phrase in Hebrew that a psalm is of David can also mean it's about David, or it's, uh, it, it's by David, as an author by David, but of David could mean that it was written by the David school of worship and music. And David was unquestionably a hugely important worship leader in the history of Israel, and still is today. And his style was copied by the successors who wanted to carry on with that style of worship and music. So, of David sometimes means he wrote it, sometimes it means it was his school and his, um, his music school that, that did some of these, and some of them might just be songs that were written later about David. And there's other authors that are mentioned in there. There's Sons of Korah, who I always think sounds like some kind of a 
19th century BCE worship band. But um, David is the one that we know about the most. David has had a lasting impact on worship, but I don't think he created in a vacuum. There were still tabernacles, there were still feasts and, and Sabbaths before David in Israel. So worship was going on before David arrived, but David had a lasting impact on um, how worship was done before because he wasn't alive during the temple and later on when the temple was there. How old are the Psalms is a good question and where do they fit into the Bible timeline? When they were written and when they were collected together into a single book are two somewhat different questions. As I was just saying, I'm pretty convinced that some of these Psalms were written by David, so they're getting back into that kind of a time period. They're, they're slightly pre-temple, pre-first temple. But there's others which look like they could have been as written as late as uh, the exile, or even on return from the exile, which means that compiling the book of Psalms, bringing together all of that worship material, probably didn't happen until Israel's returning from exile. And even by the time of Jesus, the different um, existing manuscripts that we have have a little bit different order. So some of them take book four and five of the Psalms and flip them around. So it looks like Jesus was absolutely familiar with the Psalm. No question about that. He loved to quote them and allude to them. But um, the, the Bible as we know it today, it's not been around, it didn't, it didn't come fully formed out of the sky for us. It, it took a bit of time to form. And, and by Jesus' time, Psalms is formed, but it's just not quite finished setting up in the way we, we, the form we see it today. How does this compare with our music today? Because we're looking at going from about 10th century BC, before, before Christian era, before Christ, to um, about 5th century. Uh, things are formalized by the 2nd century. And then uh, still details getting figured out around the birth of Christ. Well, let's look at a couple of our songs. For example, Be Thou My Vision. The words go back to about the 6th century in Irish, wasn't in English back then. Actually, we didn't really have much English back then either. So there we've got one which has been around for well over a millennium and a half. That's, that's a good old song. Um, another one, which I don't think we sang today, but we'll probably be singing over the Christmas season is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The music we know goes back to the 14th century. The Latin words, we don't know when they originated, but probably the 8th century or maybe even older. So that shows two songs that we are still using today in our worship. They've been around in a pretty similar form, although things have changed a bit like the melody, and I'm pretty sure we don't sing the Psalms to the same melody that David did. They hadn't figured out how to write down melodies. That's why you needed the school of David, was to learn the songs the way that David wanted them. So by the time we get to um, the New Testament, the Psalms is the daily prayer book for Paul, Jesus, 
and all the apostles. So this is a book that was used in daily worship by Jesus and the authors of the New Testament. It's, that, that, that makes it um, a little bit different. I'm not saying that the rest of scripture was not used very regularly. Uh, Deuteronomy is the most commonly quoted book by Jesus, but Psalms is second. I'm surprised Isaiah isn't up there too, but I think Psalms gets in because there's so many little allusions. Just one quick little sidebar here. What are these prayer book things? How many people here have come across prayer books in previous church experience? Is it a, something you know about? Okay. Prayer books are, are um, used in many churches, have been for a very long time, because Psalms is a prayer book of a kind. And it's used to, um, to enable prayers to be written down. And you, you might think a prayer that's written, it's not spontaneous, so it's not as useful. But spontaneous prayer is wonderful and very useful. Jesus did it, we should be doing it. Written prayer is also something Jesus used because he did use the Psalms. And written prayer allows us to write down and carefully construct a prayer that we will probably use many times. But it's, it's carefully checked against scripture. It's checked against, have we got it right? Are we wording it right? It becomes a work of art as well as a prayer. And Psalms are very much individual works of art. It's not a photo album, but it's definitely a song book or a poetry book, and every psalm will stand by itself. So prayer books and the psalms as a prayer book has continued through the centuries in the church. It's not just used in uh, worship services when, when we gather for Sunday or for any other kind of uh, special event, but... Um, and I think David always likes to introduce me as, as doing bits of history here, so here's a bit of history. But um, monks, who I, I like, I like monks because they're a bunch of radicals. We, we tend to think of monks as being the really conservative, well, and, and nuns, as the really conservative men and women that run around in funny-looking robes and whatnot. But in actual fact, monks and nuns, these orders were revivals and revolutions within the church. So they're, they're the ones who were not necessarily particularly conservative and compliant. They didn't like what they were seeing, so they went off and they started something new. But within those communities, the, the Psalms have been crucial, and they were used daily in the, in the various prayers that you did through the day. So the book of Psalms for... Um, or the monks and nuns became the book, and, and even if you weren't literate, it became the book you had fully memorized because you just kept on using it. And, and you might think, oh, 150 psalms, that's a bit of memorization. But I'll ask you, consider how many songs have you memorized? N not just the ones we sing here, but how many songs have you memorized? If you start working through it, I wouldn't be surprised if you get pretty close to 150. It's not that unrealistic. And if you're on a worship team, you're probably well over 150, something like that. So 
What goes on with the book of Psalms is it's worked into daily life in, in, um, in the church and for many individuals within the church. Um, there was a, um, when, when I'm traveling, I like listening to uh, workshops and courses. It gives me something to do when I'm driving. And uh, earlier this year, I was listening to one by somebody called Dennis Oakholm, who's, uh, he's a pastor, he's a, a, a Protestant pastor. But he was doing a, he was doing a workshop on, on Benedictines. Benedictines are one of the oldest varieties of, one of the oldest orders of monks. Um, so, I mean, it's going back to before any split between Protestant and Catholic. It was all the same church back then. So Protestants can claim a bit of this just as much as anybody else. And he was looking at what can we learn today from these Benedictines? And he covers all kinds of things in the workshop. But at the end, somebody in the question period asked him, what's the most important thing that we should be taking and applying that we can take from the, the legacy of, of the Benedictine order? And he said, it's the Psalms. Go and get the Psalms, get it into your daily life. And the one that we just started with um, is one of the ones he suggested as a morning psalm. And you could see there were a few things. It was, it was I, I lay down and I got up again. There's a few things in there that do tie into the morning. So the kind of thing he was suggesting is here are the psalms which we use in a, in a Benedictine order for the different times of the day. But go pick your own. Go through the psalms, find ones like this, and start building up a... Um, an arsenal of uh, prayers that you can use throughout the day and through any possible circumstance. Another thing about Psalms, which is quite important, is and this is because when they're referenced in the New Testament, they're very often referenced like this. Is they're just referenced by a phrase. It's a very small quote and it's expected you get the rest of it. We do this a lot, we, we, we do this quite a lot still. We make a lot of cultural references. Um, for example, if I'm, if I'm talking about something, if we're in a conversation and I use a phrase like, uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Well, you can take that at face value, it's a fairly common phrase. But if a little while later I make some comment about behind blue eyes, at least some of you here, maybe not a huge number, will start to recognize two songs by The Who. Music analogies work when we're doing psalms, I'm allowed to do that. <laughs> and as soon as you see The Who connection and you recognize these songs, you go, oh, so this is actually, that was something about uh, 1960s socio-political commentary and a very conflicted personal introspection. But when you just say behind blue eyes, you have no idea that there's much more behind it in the song that starts with that. This is probably most clear in the New Testament when Jesus from the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It sounds pretty desperate. It doesn't sound very good at all. It's a very... Um, a very bleak statement at face value, but it's from Psalm 22 or 21 if you're using a different numbering system. <laughs> the rest of the psalm goes on to be a much more, like many psalms start off with things aren't going right, but the Lord is steadfast 
And I'm still going to praise him because I know things are wonderful. It's just not looking bad right now because I don't have the vision to see the big picture. And that is that kind of a psalm, which, which ends much more triumphantly than it seems to start. So the message from the cross was not as negative as the first line of the psalm, which is what he quoted. So knowing the psalms is hugely important. You, you hear one line, it's expected that you get the rest of it. Psalm 22 is quoted um, four different verses. Verse 1, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 18 are all quoted around the story of Jesus' crucifixion and death. Verse 1 is in Matthew and Mark. Verse 7 is in Matthew and Mark. Verse 8 is in Matthew. Verse 18, which is the one about um, um, distribution of his clothes, is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this psalm is clearly an important one in the minds of the people telling the story. But they don't write out the whole thing for us. It's important to get to know these psalms. So when you see that reference, you, you pick it up. And then once, it's also referenced in Hebrews. So what are we going to do? That's just the introduction. Whew, I better move faster. But there, there, there's a lot to introduce, so don't panic. Um, next slide, please. So Psalms is one of those funny words. I think the Greeks like to put extra letters in words. Don't know what they're doing there, but I mean, are these got to do with mnemonics or pneumatics? It's not about Mennonites. That would be Mennonics if there was such a word. <laughs> now, it's kind of handy because mnemonics are about memory, but that M at the front that you don't pronounce, it's got no reason to be there, helps you remember that it's memory. So mnemonics is a self-referential mnemonic. People in computing like that sort of thing, right? Self-referential things. Pneumatics is the same thing. It's got nothing to do with mnemonics, but it does have to do with pressure, and there's a silent P at the beginning to help us with that. So we have Psalms, which has a silent P at the beginning. It's got to be there to remind us of something. Next slide, please. So here were some ideas. We already had prayer books, so there's a, there's a P word. Well, what about participation, pedagogical? We could try songbook. I have to look up, <laughs> I have to look up what pedagogical means, so that's probably no good. And songbook, I couldn't find anywhere. So could, next slide, please. Oh, any other P's? Can, can you come up with any other P's that might relate? Pray? Oh, praise, praise. Yes, that's a good one. Anything else? Any ones I didn't think of? <laughs> petition, which is close to prayer, but petition, yeah, it's a kind of prayer. Next, next slide, please. So praise God in there, absolutely. Um, the, the other one I thought that, because I couldn't get tea to, teaching to start with something other than a T, I went with portal. And I want to go through this in succession so that we look at participation and then we look at Psalms as a portal, and then we end up in praise, which is also related to participation. So, uh, next slide, please. 
So we have call to participation. This is a thread which comes through in the Psalms. This is because of a characteristic which is quite unusual in scripture, is that Psalms, like the one that we started with this morning, it's in the first person. Most of scripture, most of those stories are about somebody else at a different time in a different place. They're not talking about I. They're talking about him or her. So Psalms is, is quite unusual within scripture this, of this. And as soon as you read it, as soon as we stood up to pray and we read it, we participated. So Psalms, because of how it's written, um, it's unavoidable. You're, you're participating by reading it and by thinking what the psalmist, you're, sh you're sharing the thoughts with the psalmist. You're, you're, making, you're making a prayer, you're making a petition, and we're making it together. It helps us coordinate our prayer. We also read Psalm 3 together as a prayer. That's participating as a community. We're participating with scripture as a community. And I think actually, if we put this in the order we learn things, I think we probably do it this way first and then we do it individually because I think it's easier as children to do things as a group than to try and do things individually. So maybe as we develop, we start off participating in a community before we learn to be sufficiently individual that we can, we can participate individually. And I'll skip over that because I've really already said that. As we move on in participation and learning to participate more, we start to participate as response. And this is, I mentioned a little bit earlier that the book of Psalms is like a collection. It's a collection of art, except the art we're looking at is, it's prayer, it's a poem, it's, it's got an image, but it's a written image. So next slide, please. Oh, that's actually quite visible. Good, I was worrying about that. This is, an, this is a, if you're in photography at all, this is an image you can't avoid seeing. It was created in 1936 by Dorothea Lange, and arguably it's the most widely printed, distributed, copied, used on stamps, and commercially reused image in the world. It's a candid portrait, and what that means is the subject of the portrait is not looking at the camera, they're not looking at you. You, you're, you're sneaking a peek at a moment. You're not, you're a fly on the wall. Um, maybe the kids are hiding from you, they don't want to see you, but it's not engaging you because the, the subject is looking at you. It's engaging you because of what you see and what you learn about in the picture, what you're seeing in that moment, that snapshot. And, and I think every psalm is like this. This is a this is an image which uh, makes it a little easier to describe, but everything I'm talking about with, with this image, take back to Psalms when you're looking at Psalms, as they, they, they paint a picture using words that is grabbing you. And 
among other things, just to give you a bit more history, you can read whole books on this one image. Lang was a portrait photographer working in San Francisco, right as the Great Depression got started, at which time she became interested in photography of what was going on socially in her neighborhood. So she started to photograph bread lines and other signs of the social and economic conditions in the country at the time. So basically, she was an early street photographer. She's recognized as being the pioneer of documentary photography, although apparently she hated being called that. She didn't see herself as a documentary photographer. She saw herself as a portrait photographer, I think, in part, when she was doing this work. But as a result of taking these photographs of the, uh, the breadlines, there's a very famous one she took of the, of the White Angel breadline. We could look at a bunch of her pictures, but we don't have time for that. Um, she was employed, she, she was identified as somebody who could capture the story as well as a picture. And she was, um, she was hired by the Farm Security Administration, which was part of the New Deal government to document the migration of farmers due to drought, read climate change. This image comes up in climate change campaigns nowadays. And look at the economic hardship that was resulting in this migration from the Dust Bowl to the West. On her way back to San Francisco after weeks of assignment, she and her, I, I think her husband, were driving through a camp in California of prospective pea pickers who'd come out to this area, this rural area, for work, but the crop had been destroyed by weather. So there was no work, the crop was gone, and they were stuck there. They spent their last money to get out there, and, and there was no employment, there was no food. So she stopped, she insisted they stop. She got out, she shot seven pictures, she didn't expose them very well. Um, with the old photography, this obviously isn't digital in 36. You had two times to fix your picture. You took the picture and you exposed the negative. But then you had to also create the print. So her printer, which was a person back then, not a machine, complained bitterly that she had done an absolute rubbish job of the exposure because he had to do all kinds of work to dodge and burn this into a decent, decent print. She didn't take notes because of the work she was doing. She took careful notes everywhere she captured these pictures because that was part of the, part of the, the point. She didn't even record the name of the subject, but um, the subject and uh, the... Um, oh, stop that. The... Um, the identity of the subject was eventually found out, as were the children. And it became clear that the, the subject had told her that she could take her picture, but you mustn't publish it. Well, Dorothea Lang published this as soon as she got back to San Francisco. Also not like her. She was usually very good at following the instructions of her subjects. The picture immediately caused a reaction, both from individuals and from the government, and within days, a shipment of tons of food had arrived in the camp, although this particular person had moved on and her, her family had moved on to somewhere else. But the point is 
the image gives it, you, you learn something when you look at the image. You learn something when you look at a psalm and read about David's situation. And you have to respond. You can respond by doing nothing, but then you've got to explain to yourself, why did you do nothing? So participation is something, as we're getting into these more important kinds of participation, participation is triggered as response. Because now that you know this, it's like if you find out about a crime that's about to be committed, but you do nothing. Are you part of that crime now because you did nothing? Next slide, please. One of, and sorry, this isn't a psalm, but it's one of the most compelling examples of this kind of very sharp image. And what are you going to do about it in Scripture? The oldest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Mark end here. When you get to a little bit later manuscripts, there's some additional stuff. There's nothing wrong with what's in there. It's, it's part of canon. But the oldest version of Mark that we have ends this way. It's quite dramatic. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What an amazing ending. There's nothing like reading the whole of the, you saw the whole movie of Mark, and now it's, and they went away and did nothing. What a fantastic way. It's just like the image of the migrant mother. Now you've seen it, what are you going to do? Mark ends it with, now I've told you, they ran away and did nothing, what are you going to do? The entire, the entire message has been turned over to you to respond to, to participate in. Eventually, participation becomes participation in the story. We've been reading the story that uh, comes everywhere from Genesis up to, uh, I guess, through uh, Kings and Chronicles. And then we've, we've taken a few day tours to related stories. But in the history, we, we, we've got up to uh, Kingdom of Israel and so on. But especially as we read the Psalms, do you, do you remember we were looking at uh, we were talking a bit about the psalm we started with as a prayer this morning. It's, it's David. Um, he's got issues going on. His entire life he had issues going on. He never got away from having issues. But it was always, I have an issue here. Oh, and praise. Some of his psalms are just praise. But most of them, he starts with, I've got an issue. And yeah, but God's faithful. He's going to fix it. And I don't really need to worry, even though things are pretty bad. So the transition from responding to what you learn 
to parti and, and participating in whatever you need to as a result of that. It becomes realizing that we're participating in the story along with David. This is why the Psalms work, is because the story didn't stop when, when the First Testament stopped. It didn't even stop at the end of the book of Acts or at the end of Revelation. The story is still going on today, and we have the same problems David had. We have new, more modern ones. We have a whole range of um, challenges that are really just the same challenges that are covered as you go through the Psalms. So participation that the Psalms is inviting us into includes realizing that the story we're currently in the middle of is the ongoing story that we've been reading about. Next, next slide, please. A couple of examples of Psalms. And I, I, there are so many examples of all the things I'm talking about in Psalms. We could be going through just example after example. Many of you, I think, have already looked through Psalms a fair bit. You're, you're probably recognizing these things that I'm talking about. But these were just a couple that um, struck me as reading out of the um, now I'm participating in the story kind of mentality. Uh, these, are, these, are, these are Psalms where um, I think I can identify with David so I can recognize that I'm part of the story. I want to move on to the portal now. What do you mean by the portal? So next, next slide, please. The portal is Psalms as instructors. Um, I think you could argue that although the entire, um, the entire First Testament was doing this, the Psalms, because they were being used so frequently, were the... Um, were in part an early Sunday school or Sabbath school curriculum. Many of these psalms were being used to, um, to do things in services. We don't know exactly how they were being used, but we know they were being used. We know they were being sung. They were being, um, they were being used by the community of faithful in Israel. But some of them are definitely instructions such as the beginning of the first psalm, was it starts off by, it, it's an introduction to all the psalms, you know, blessed is a man who does this and various other things. Um, it, it's, it's seen in a number of the other psalms, and two, two of the ones which jump out are Psalm 41 and definitely Psalm 19. The first one there, blessed is the one who considers the poor, is an example of a psalm which many people think is being reused in the Beatitudes by Jesus. In fact, the Beatitudes could easily be seen as a collection of quotes from Psalms just put together in a sermon. 
So it's not new in the sense that you guys already know this is what he's telling them. This is what you're familiar with. You've already been seeing all of these individual beatitudes, all these individual blessed is thee. You've already seen them in the Psalms. That's one thing that Google will help you with. That one's not too strange. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's a pretty well-known uh, song. I'm sure we've all used it. Uh, we, we, we've all sung it. This is another kind of portal, as well as just being simple instruction. The Psalms also give us a number of good places to dive into exploring what does this actually mean? Because some people, not everybody, I don't know if this fits with anybody here, but I've come across people who, who have struggled with this psalm and other psalms because it superficially at least seems to be so different than what Paul says. Paul doesn't come across with warm fuzzy feelings about this thing called the law. So how do we deal with, in the New Testament, Paul having issues with the law, but the psalmist can't say enough good things about it? It's a completely different experience, but Paul, who we've already recognized, this was his prayer book. So Paul is as familiar with this, and probably much more familiar with this. He's probably got it memorized, unlike me. And it doesn't make sense that Paul is being inconsistent with his, with his scripture. That's not Paul. He's very interested in being consistent with his scripture. So let's uh, go on to the next slide. What is this? Any ideas? Have you seen this somewhere before? So, so what is it? Is it? Okay, Th this is what O Canada looks like if you run it through Google Translate into Greek and then into Hebrew and then back into English. <laughs> now, this is what has happened to Psalms. The original text is the inspired text and then it's translated into Greek and then it goes into Latin and then we work on it, we get it in English or whatever language you're working in. We all get this as, this is O Canada. It, it's a little off, it might be a bit harder to sing, but you recognize it. And if you were going to preach a sermon on O Canada, you'd probably be able to hit all the main points that are in the original text by this double translation or triple translation. Except, look in the, um, may God make our earth glorious and free. It seems to have got a little bit confused about land when we did the translations. And what's going on is there are words in every language which have multiple meanings. Land is an interesting example of that. Land could be something I own. It, it could be literally the ground itself, or it could be the country. So there, there's quite a few different scales and levels that it can mean. But when you translate into another language, it's extremely difficult, probably unlikely, that you will find a word which has the same range of meanings. And if you really want 
that range of meanings, that makes it harder. Maybe you shouldn't just go to one word. And Torah is one of those words in Hebrew, which is, which is hard to translate into Greek. It has a range of meanings, and there is no Greek word that carries all those range of, all that full range of meanings. Law is one of the ideas, but Torah also means instruction, which is the most common meaning. It means guidance. It means law, as in legislation. And it means rules. So when we read the Psalms and we find the psalmist beside himself with joy about the instruction of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord, he may not be in fact, he almost certainly isn't talking about quite the same thing that Paul is concerned about. And Paul, who's writing in Greek, is concerned about legalism, not instructionalism, okay? David is thrilled to be instructed by the Lord. So we, we have Psalms like 19 and 1 and 43, where the psalmist cannot say enough good things about the law, but... When we go to Paul, we've got to make sure that the meaning, that his meaning of law, it's a subset, it's a, it's a smaller amount than the Torah in the, in the First Testament. Now, the first five books make up Torah. Most of that is not legislation. Most of that is story. God seems to like to instruct through stories. So instruction goes on throughout the whole of Torah, not just in the legislation. That's another way of looking at this, is the instruction of the Lord, all of that story is a wonderful thing, and that's what the psalmist is saying in there. Moving on to the last part. We've been using this as a bridge to praise. It doesn't seem related. But here's how it's related. What we sing is what we are being taught, probably even more so than a sermon. When did you last memorize a sermon? Did you ever memorize a sermon? I don't even memorize this one. But songs you memorize. So songs, I think worship team and worship team leaders are well aware of this. They are, they are hugely important because the songs reflect our theology more than our, our sermons even do. Like our sermons, but the songs, they go from our head to our heart. That's what we're really taking inside because we memorize them for one thing. Music is something that we're, we're adding to the prayer and participation that is also incredibly powerful. I'll give you two quick examples of this. In the summer of 2020, I was driving, um, I think I was driving from the airport to where I work out of in Ireland, listening to the radio, and a song came on I hadn't heard for 20 or so years, but I remembered it from back then. And on Irish radio, 
commentators like to make a lot of discussion about each individual song. So there was a discussion afterwards. And I found it really intriguing because this song was not very well known in North America, but it was, it was well known in Europe. And it was making a comeback, they thought, because of COVID and the feelings of what was going on in Europe with COVID. Following the 1989 Moscow Music Peace Festival, which was kind of like a Russian Woodstock, um, one of the bands was there, a German metal band called the Scorpions. The, the, um, the lead singer, uh, Klaus Meiner, wrote a song about what he felt was going on as a result of going there as, as a metal rocker band. But as a German who knew his history and knew Russia and knew the, the symbolism of going there under Soviet era still, and his family history with Russia, military family history with Russia, this, this, this hit him personally and, and profoundly, so he wrote the song. He wasn't the songwriter in the band. It's like, it's like Entwistle writing a song in The Who. Um, the song was then published in 1990, and if you know your dates, you can figure out when the Berlin Wall was coming down. The song became incredibly popular across the whole of the Soviet-controlled Eastern Europe as an anthem about hope for the future. And this came just as the wall was coming down, just as the Soviet Union was starting to collapse. Look it up on YouTube. The official video is approaching a billion views, which is pretty good for a not terribly well-known song. It's an interesting video. You can also find, and the, one of the unusual things about the 89 Moscow Music Festival is it, it was a political thing as well as a music thing, of course. You can find those too, and you can see the rows of police who were there to control the thousands in the crowd, just in case. But if you have to look closely, but it's, and it's also, Bizarre looking at the costumes that were worn by 80s bands and the hair. Oh my gosh. But if you want to see those, they're, they're, they're all on there. They're quite interesting. That's an example. This is just secular stuff. But this is an example of a song which so quickly goes and grabs the, the emotions and the mind of the whole of Europe. Let me give you another example. This is another one related to music, but it's a little bit different. When I was young, um, I'm pretty sure I had heard sung and sung the 23rd Psalm many times before I got around to reading it. So my initial exposure in, in Sunday school and in church, and, and at that time, I think it, it was a very well-used, well used, frequently used psalm. So this is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Well, for me, that was, it was really strange. I couldn't understand why are we so happy about a song where there's a shepherd I don't want. <laughs> and, oh, well, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me go for naps. Yeah, okay, I can see why I don't like him. <laughs> Later on, I, I 
got to think about this a bit more, but this was entrenched in my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely just joking here. That's how I heard it initially. And then when I got older, went to university and got a little bit more um, profound <laughs> in how I was thinking, I realized, oh, this is, this is profound. This is like a confession. It's one of the sheep confessing that they don't want their shepherd. I was okay with the nap by then. It was okay. It's like a siesta, so I'm okay with that. And then I realized, oh, there's a comma in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that doesn't really mean what I thought it did. Okay. When you take music and you take the words, it's so important to get the words right. Because <laughs> if you don't, you, you, can, you can end up going off on a tangent that wasn't really the intention of the psalm or the or the composer. It may not be quite in line with what we're thinking, so checking, checking the words that we sing, knowing that the music that we sing is right on the mark, it matches scripture, it matches our creed that we were looking at earlier this year, is really important. Power of music can overwhelm the accuracy of the words. It's really easy for the music to compel in a way that takes us beyond what the words are saying. But music very much enables participation. So music and worship, and I'm, I'm guessing David knew this too, was enabling participation in worship and praise, which is really important. Praise, especially through music, is a creative event. So when we're taking something like a psalm, which is already written down, or any piece of music which is already written down, every time we're performing that worship, it's different. I hate to say unique, because it's one of those overused words, we're all unique, just like everybody else kind of thing. But um, worship even if it's being done from things which are written like psalms, written like prayers, or um, written as our music, it's, it's not limited by that. We still all come together, we sing, we make a new performance of that worship every time we do it. So worship is something which is unique to us. Although we do have, I'm probably getting behind on my slides. Yeah, could we go to the next one, please? Although the heavens are declaring the glory of God, the heavens don't have the ability to be creative. The heavens are spectacular. I'm not disputing that. But we were created in God's image. And one of those characteristics that we specially have is the ability to create. And this is so important when we get to something like praise and worship, because praise and worship is a creative process, I think. I'm pretty sure. Each time it's new and different. So next slide, please. This, this, is, this is coming to the end of this, but Psalm 34 makes this very clear. Um, I think that the, uh, the importance of 
uh, bringing this, this thread of participation that we've been following around to praise and closing it off is, is said very well here. I bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The, the writer, David, can't, can't contain his enthusiasm, it seems, to want to go and do this thing, to make this, this thing, this, this praise thing. And that's the challenge that we are going into, that I'm giving you that we're going into in the Christmas season, is even though we've been through Christmas dozens of times or whatever for some of us, there will be something new. There'll be a new image. There will be things that you haven't seen before or learned before. There will be opportunities to participate out of response to what we see around us and what we see in, in what we're learning about this, the, the message of the story of Christmas and the message. There'll be a call to participate in praise. So as we, as we move on to finish off the service with praise, there's an opportunity to participate, thinking a bit about these things that we've been looking at coming out of the Psalms about the role of participating. And the, the participation that I think uh, Addison was mentioning just before we started here of Jesus, this is another level of participation that is, we're just an image of the participation in incarnation that he's doing at Christmas. Is, it's the creator God is choosing to participate in the life of the world. The, the, the world that he has created, he's, he's, now, he's now going and, and seeing from our perspective. That kind of participation is just, it, it's, it's God participating. We're just his image, right? So our participation is, is good but his participation is complete in a way that we can never get to. He, and, and we can look at that and realize that the, the participation of God becoming incarnate at Christmas is amazing. As you were saying, it's, it's unbelievable, completely un understandable, not understandable. And it's again, it's an image it's a picture and a story that motivates us to participate in the things that he's calling us to do. So as we enter into this season, while we're well entered into it by now, I guess, be looking for these new things and be ready to respond to the calls to new participation, whether it's praise or whether it's action.